I think the biggest issue DAOs face today is that there aren't enough professional operators in DAOs. It's, you know, mostly people who are big personalities on Twitter, um, you know, maybe an airdrop threader who helps a lot of people get, to get tokens, gets delegated a bunch of tokens or something like that. And while it's totally fine, maybe like more technical entities and entities who are, who are, you know, really involved, like maybe, I don't know, smart contract auditors or things of that nature would be the best delegates. Hey everyone, Sam and Dan here. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to shout out MetaMask Portfolio. Are you always constantly stressed like us managing your portfolio across different chains, wallets, LP positions, perps positions? I'm excited to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio, which lets you manage all of your crypto assets across different networks, wallets, all in one place. Do more with Web3 your way with MetaMask Portfolio. You'll hear a little bit more about it later in the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have a great interview lined up with the uh, BlockWorks research team. Today, we're going to be joined by Matt and Brick making his debut. Before we get into that, I want to give a quick uh, shout out to our sponsor, Hexens. They're one of the most hardcore security teams in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one protocols like Polygon, including their work on their new ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. You'll hear about them a little bit more later in the show from Dan, but I also want to remind everyone to use code 0xresearch10 at checkout at blockworksresearch.com if you're interested in uh, leading industry research data and governance updates. Today is October 16th. Dan, how about I just kick it over to you to get things started off? For sure, for sure. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll kick things off with a top movers and biggest losers section. Get us moving with the top mover, and that's definitely the Bitcoin uh, running on the the news of the spot ETF this morning. So today's uh, Monday, as Sam mentioned, and you know we woke up this morning to some what seemed like to be great news. Uh, there was a Coin Telegraph tweet that went out, just kind of saying the SEC has approved the iShares, which is BlackRock's spot Bitcoin ETF. And uh, so obviously this is huge news that the market's been anticipating for months and months and quite honestly years. And it's pushing towards formulation. You know, it was just last week where uh, Grayscale had another positive step in their ETF battle with the SEC uh, just regarding their uh, their G GBTC fund. Um, and so it's like, all right, we kind of seems like we're treading in that right direction. So boom, this like headline hits on Monday morning. Bitcoin runs up 7%. Um, and I I was with it at first and we actually hopped on our team call. And I got to give credit to Matt here. He was like, nah, this is, this is probably fake. And it was like every, there was no source anywhere. And then it kept spreading. But then everyone just kept sourcing the original tweet, which had no source. Uh, and so, you know, first step whenever I see ETF news is definitely just go to the two Bloomberg legends, uh, James Seifert and uh, blanking on the other guys. Oh, Eric Balchunas. They have incredible ETF content nonstop. So I pull up their Twitters. Uh, and it was, it was one of the two of them had actually tweeted back at the Cointelegraph tweet and like source. And of course, I was like, all right, there might be some credence to this not being not being real. And, you know, sure enough, five minutes later, I'm now putting Bitcoin in the biggest loser section as it retraced the entire move. Uh, and Cointelegraph then edited their tweet to say, you know, this is like they added the word reportedly in there. So the SEC reportedly approves. Um, well, they were the first one to report it. So that was questionable there. And, uh, you know, sure enough, about an hour or so later, the tweet's deleted, an apology message comes out. Uh, and it just completely seems to be false news, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so Bitcoin is actually claiming the throne for biggest mover and biggest loser, all within a 10-minute span uh, of this Monday morning. So definitely uh, always a fun industry to work in when you have to wake up to complete chaos. But uh, it's also a little bit disheartening. I mean, sometimes it really does feel like we live in a clown world and this was, you know, no... Uh, 
you know, this today felt no different. I was writing our newsletter this morning. I actually had a, a quote in there. I like, feel like I kind of summed up uh, a little bit of how I felt. And it's like, one thing is true. A crypto native, a crypto native media outlet posted a false report that led to a 7% Bitcoin candle in a matter of minutes. And that kind of like is only further proving uh, Gensler might be right in his claim uh, that the spot Bitcoin market can be easily manipulated. Uh, but it was actually a portfolio manager from ARCA, uh, Jeff Dorman, who like, you know, was tweeting about this as well. And he was like, you know what? Every market can be easily manipulated on a, on a major false headline. So we got to grow up and mature as an industry. And like, let's get some you know, true due diligence and not just be putting things out there to be first to the, to the, to the click rush. I thought one of the most interesting takes in response to this, and yeah, what a crazy morning, like absolutely absurd. And this all went down in 30 minutes while we were on our morning call. Absurd. But Bitcoin's still up 4% on the day, like even now at, you know, 2 p.m., uh, six hours, some six hours after all this gets going down. And one of the cool, better tapes I saw was Crypto Donald on Twitter, who's like, that 7% move in, you know, a five, seven, eight, 10 minute time frame shows that people are sidelined that shouldn't be sidelined. He says that, you know, this in this is almost an inevitability that a Bitcoin spot ETF does get approved and that sidelined money might now realize like, OK, maybe we should put on some exposure um, just to play like devil's advocate to that. I actually do tend to agree and think that that's an interesting take um, that now we'll have some more of that exposure priced in. So meaning like that we won't retrace the whole way down. Uh, we'll continue to see some upside. Uh, but one interesting, you know, just to play devil's advocate to that is maybe people just are pricing in a non inevitability, a, a low chance that the Bitcoin spot ETF does get approved soon, in which case, you know, it wasn't mispositioned money. It was just people don't think it's actually going to happen. Not sure which side I take. I tend to agree with Crypto Donald and thought that was smart. Another interesting factor is that so much, so much short OI got wiped on that move to the upside that there would probably be some incentive for market makers to now um, squeeze it out to the downside. So in other words, it's easier for market makers to push the price down than it would have been before, given that a lot of shorts got wiped out. Just think that's an interesting fact that I saw also, uh, uh, I guess, propagated through Twitter. Yeah, I just don't really know how this happened. Like, that's a, a pretty big blunder, to be honest. It, it almost seemed a little coordinated. I saw someone on Twitter saying that someone hopped in a Telegram group, dropped like that headline 30 minutes before it actually reached X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it. So like... Yeah, I, I don't know. I also saw the Coin Telegraph intern, and this might have been a shit post too. But like, he's like, "Thanks for the exit liquidity," which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Twitter was just super, super entertaining this morning. It felt like the good old days, like two years ago, when everyone was just screaming into the echo chamber on the way up. It was a lot more fun on CT back then. Yeah, the uh, at intern handle had a great tweet, and it was like, you know, we're sorry to to say that we've had to formally let the Coin Telegraph. Uh, intern go from the the intern group. Uh, I'll put the link to that one in the show notes, but the ship posting was pretty impressive this morning as well. I mean, my first thought that this was that, like how inefficient the market seems to be. Like if you're trading news, it would have been so easy to just like go along when the news comes out and then it didn't take that long again to for the market to like switch and start realizing that, okay, this news probably, or this news piece doesn't hold and then just ride it back down. So I don't know, my first thought was that, okay, there's still a lot of like opportunity here and the market seems super inefficient in that way. 100% agree with you there. I was like, okay, like Matt, I think it was you that dropped it in Slack. And then I'm looking at the Bitcoin price and I'm like, all right, it's not moving. It took it like a minute or two to move. And then I'm like, well, this is weird. And then like you had so many opportunities to short it after you kind of knew it was fake. Very odd price action.
strong agree there. It's super interesting that uh, once it like, you know, price goes up seven, eight percent, it did take about 30 seconds or a minute, which is longer than I would expect. You'd think that, you know, the scalping bots would have made that that happen very way quicker. But, you know, if three, four minutes in, I'm looking through the SECs. I'm looking through all the SECs like recent reports, um, like, you know, word that they put out. I'm looking through every response to the tweet, seeing is there actually a source attached? Like, is everyone just sourcing the first tweet? And at that point, you know, it's like, oh, shit, like this news is not definitely fake, but uh, there's no source anywhere out there on the Internet. This 8% price move is probably not justified. And then you had like, 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 uh, like Brick said, a solid period of time to be able to short it on the way down to it does feel so inefficient. Yeah, yeah, and maybe this pushes us back to the original timeline for the spot Bitcoin ETF, which I believe uh, was would be the BlackRock filing. That is the last time it could be delayed or accepted or denied would be in February. And so, you know, I just pulled up the estimated Bitcoin happening type timeline. That's in April, and it's kind of like all things are back in back in order for the Bitcoin spot ETF carrying us into the ha- Bitcoin happening, uh, and really. That's that seems to be an exciting catalyst. Like, you know, sometimes it's just easier to think about those two things and left left curve and be like, all right, everything that happens in between now and then, like, actually doesn't matter. Yeah, I also saw Eric Balchunas. I'm probably botching his name, Dan. You just mentioned him, but he said I thought it was super weird when I saw the BlackRock one got approved because with the ETH futures ETF, they approved all of them at the same time to make sure like there was no first mover advantage because that wouldn't be very fair and it'd be like the SEC picking favorites. So I do think uh, in the future, if you're wondering if a Bitcoin ETF um, approval is is fake or not, it's probably it'd probably be fake if it was one specific one and not all of them all together. So that's another thing to take away from the situation. Dan, you want to head over there for some governance updates, though? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. And so we got three for you this week. Uh, we'll start off with the Stride News. They're actually going to back down from the governance buyout, or excuse me, the Cosmos Hub buyout of Stride. Uh, that was we, ha- we had a, like basically a half an episode on this, so uh, we'll put the link to that one in the show notes. So I won't harp too much on here, uh, but it sounds like you know a lot of the community was really just against this. Uh, whether there were some people on the stride side that were like, this is crazy. Why would we do this? There were some people on the Cosmos hub side saying the exact same thing. And of course, there was people on both sides saying, what a great idea. So it was all over the place. There was no clear way to be like, okay, well, here, if we're going to do it, here's a map of what that looks like. And this is what would make sense to us. Nobody really seemed to even put that forward. So it really never even left the ideation stage. stage. Uh, but now it sounds like it's being fully shelved and saved for later. Uh, and if you had any indication, if you wanted some indication of what the community thought about it, this lane on the 14 day and the 30 day time frame, time frame, Shride is still down 30, 35%. So a lot of people were not happy about this to say the least. And I'm not too, too surprised it's getting shelved. Um, but again, yeah, if you want more details on what it was and you know how our team thought about it, definitely check out that episode that we will put in the link in the show notes. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but to discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. 
Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. The other big news was the Blur fee switch proposal. And so this came out uh, about midweek last week. Arca actually put a proposal forward in the Blur governance forums, really just bringing about the point of a fee switch and, and their their belief about why you could turn it on and how they think the best way about going and doing so would be. So when Blur originally launched, it had like an 180-day time frame before anyone could have a fee switch discussion. And that has since passed by about a quarter or so. And so Arca's proposal stated a 1% base fee on all trading activity, but it also had this interesting tier system that would apply discounts to token holders that held X amount of tokens, basically. And all fees generated by this proposal would be used to buy back and then burn blur. And I got a lot of thoughts on this because it kind of asks you two questions. One, should revenue be returned to token holders at this point in the Blur protocol's life? And two, if yes, what should that look like? And so first, like my opinion is no. Right now, revenue should not be used to be returned to token holders because the token pit plays no role within Blur's function. Like it does not, you don't need to have the token today. Uh, And so because of that, it's just like this governance token and that's fine. And when you return, when you return protocol revenue to the token, it's like basically like a dividend and dividend should be excess cash that the protocol does not need to continue growing its market share or building the best product. And for a product that's like 200 ish days old, that is absolutely not the case. It is not one. It is not the best NFT marketplace out there. It still has a lot of work it needs to be doing. So I would like to see that revenue being recycled into the protocol to promote growth or build a new service product or hire some more engineers to go build X, Y, and Z. Like there are so many other things that could be done with this, like this this money being generated, um, that buying back and burning is not the the answer here. And like returning revenue to token holders is like just throwing it out the window in a lot of ways. Uh, and Arca cited the reason of why they wanted to see that because uh, Blur is now kind of teasing this end to season two trading rewards uh, as November 20th. And when the, uh, supposedly when November 20th hits, all these trading rewards that people have been uh, earning over the last couple months will now become liquid. Uh, and of course, there's really no use to holding the Blur token today, right? It's just like a governance token that has governance rights over a protocol that has very minimal governance. Uh, so it's like fairly a useless token. And so they're trying to be like, all right, well, if it's a useless token, then let's give it revenue. But like, that doesn't to me seem like the best answer here. Uh, but curious uh, if you guys have any thoughts on this proposal. I think it's just not the right timing. Like I'm all for throwing on a fee switch at some point. Um, I think it's just being forced because honestly, probably because the you know core contributors, investors and, and team allocations just you know hit their cliff and now they're vesting. So I'm sure they're kind of desperate to get some value accrual. And, you know, if you look at the X2, Y2 or looks token charts, the the token incentives can only take you so far, especially as your token bleeds out towards zero and the value of those incentives gets less and less valuable over time. So I think the logic here is like, well, we'll still hand out these blur trading rewards, but if you want to keep farming in the future, then you have to actually hold the airdrop we give you in order to have like free 
um, trading on the platform and continue to farm into the future. So I guess it can remove some sell pressure and then I guess continually buying the token with trading fees could help, you know, that FDV and make the incentive and back of napkin math that people would then be kind of writing out in order to see, all right, should I even be wash trading here? Is it worth my time and, and the fees I'm paying versus what the value of the blur token is? So I see the logic. I just think the NFT market is still six to 12 months away from catching on to a new narrative. I could also see why they want to do the uh, fee burning thing, because that seems to be a good playbook to get your like multiples higher or the market like I don't know. It seems that a lot of market participants enjoy a fee burning mechanism, even though it doesn't accrue real value that much. Um, and maybe also trying to ride on that whole bit uh, wave that has been going on lately, where like, okay, they do make a lot of revenue or like do burn a lot of tokens, but kind of getting into a similar comp bucket with uh, like those protocols. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point, Brick, because when I think about like the buyback and burn, it's pretty similar to like um, you see this a lot within the traditional equity markets, right? Like companies will repurchase shares of their stock and then that kind of gets equally uh, allocated across all of these shareholders. And that happens for one reason, and that's because traditional finance equity markets are fairly efficient for the most part, and especially when it comes to uh share repurchases because you st you have this enterprise value that gets divided amongst the uh, total number of shares. And the only thing that's changing in that calculation is the number of shares outstanding. So when that gets reduced, the value per share increases. And that like tends to work quite well as this like more tax efficient uh, distribution of excess revenue to shareholders because dividends count as income and share repurchases do not. It's just capital gains. Uh, but in crypto markets, you don't have agreed upon financial metrics and that everyone can like, you know, has this model that's like relatively agreed upon. Sure, you maybe you don't totally agree on like the long term growth drivers, but roughly you're going to get to the same number. Um, that's not the case in, in these markets. So when you do these share repurchases, like just because the denominator is decre decreasing doesn't necessarily make the token value increase. So I don't know. I don't think share token buyback and burns are like the best way to redistribute wealth to token holders if you're going to do it. But I mean, at the end of the day, like there is a narrative around it, right? And you, Brick, you mentioned Rollbit, and I think that's a great example. Like they're really crushing it with their with their model. I was going to say, like, I also totally agree with Brick's take there, but the way you took it was like, okay, here's how this could bring you a fundamental valuation to the Blur token. And the way I took it was like, it could fit into a narrative that's currently, you know, hot and popular among CT and investors in crypto. And, who cares if I don't, you know, I don't think Blur is going to drive, you know, meaningful revenue to token holders, even if they, if they turn on the fee switch, if they return to token holders, and you know, that's two big ifs right there. But if they do both those things, I don't think they're returning meaningful value to, uh, to token holders based on their valuation today. That said, it might fit into a narrative where, you know, there's a lot of new liquid funds who are probably looking for these protocols who have real yields. Um, I know that that's something that kind of is dying out compared to the narrative that existed a year ago. But at the same time, I do think that, that is something that uh, a lot of the newer investors in crypto, people in the class of 2020 kind of look for. 
So I think that it definitely does have some value just as far as getting back into the attention of the general public and things of that nature. I got a question that I, I should probably know the answer to. So Sam, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on you here for this one, but what, uh, what percentage of market share does blur have relative to OpenSea these days? I was actually looking at this like the other day, but it's, if you have like a Hill Dobby's wash filter on, which is actually a great little calculation that he personally made and he's got it on Dune. I highly recommend everyone checks it out. Maybe we can drop that in the show notes, but sure. it's, uh, it's around like 50 to 65%, depending on the given week. So they're definitely seeing more volume than OpenSea still. But uh, what's interesting is OpenSea still sees two to three times more like uniquely active wallets, like really interacting with the protocol. So I think that just implies one, like if someone's going to buy an NFT, like a retail person who's not super crypto native, they're going to OpenSea. They're not going to, to blur yet. I think OpenSea kind of has that Uniswap brand. Um, and then on top of that, I just think a lot of the volume, like it's not technically wash trading and filtered out based on Hill Dobby's like methodology, but it's impossible to detect because it's it's the the blur token farming. That is definitely what's driving the revenue over there. I personally think blur is a better product and they've done some innovative stuff, obviously, with blend. And I think they're continually going to push out new products and features. So I really don't think it's a terrible play if you're bullish on like general purpose marketplaces but i'm personally just super bearish that i don't understand why anyone who you know drops an nft wouldn't want to have that royalty like baked in income slash like market fee income accrued to themselves i think like there will eventually be a shopify type platform that helps you really easily spin up an nft marketplace and that's like what people will use because they're going to want those that, that that fee revenue oh that makes me want to skip over to one of my cool thrones so bad but i guess i'll just have to save it Patience, patience. All right, everyone, let's take a moment to hear about MetaMask portfolio. If you're like me and Sam, managing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be so overwhelmingly complicated. That's why we're excited about MetaMask portfolio. All you have to do is connect your MetaMask wallet to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one place. You can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge and state crypto assets at competitive rates all within the app and you get to choose from a vetted list of providers there's no more jumping between dozens of sites and apps metamask portfolio lets you do more in web3 your way giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all within one place manage your portfolio your way with metamask portfolio peep the link in the description of today's episode to get started now and pivot over to the arbitrum uh, Stip recap to kind of walk through those short, short-term incentive programs, and now that that's closed, you know, I know you and Brick both put a ton of effort into you know allocating out the Blockworks research votes uh, that we have as delegates, as well as kind of helping you know the community understand as well. You guys made a phenomenal uh, Excel spreadsheet that kind of walked through and gave the highlights. So, so please take it away. Brick Boccaccio and I took a significant amount of time to look through 105 arbitrage proposals. I know it's been talked about, just like short recap, 50 million ARB is to be allocated to, you know, projects in the ecosystem who apply for grants. Um, There's 105 applications. And I believe something like, I'll double check, but something around 30 actually ended up getting funded. Uh, A large portion of the 50 million got sent to GMX, which was 12 million tokens that will be, you know, returned to GMX stakers. Additionally, projects like Camelot, Jones, Dow, Dopex, uh, Pendle, uh, Radiant, and plenty of others got funded. One interesting thing is that most of the projects that got funded were, you know, had a lot of goodwill in the Arbitrum ecosystem. So I think that that was a huge factor in delegates making a choice. While that was something we took into account, it was only one of the metrics. So we, we looked at things like 
um, you know, total fees accrued, how, what was the quality of the proposal, TVL, depending on the different types of protocols, we bucketed it into things like perps and lending and yield optimizers, um, and then looked at different metrics for each individual category. But the projects that got funded, it seems that ecosystem goodwill, was it an OG project in the Ar Arbitrum ecosystem that, you know, probably brought on a lot of these DeFi DGENs that helped make it the vibrant DeFi culture that exists over there today. And those are really what got funded. While most of these incentive programs haven't started yet, so it's hard to know exactly where the alpha will be, it is definitely worth keeping an eye on every project that uh, got funded because there will be some good opportunities. These programs have to end by January 31st, meaning that there should be about you know three months of, of incentives for each of these programs. And there's a lot of ARB to be given out. Maybe we can put a link to the ones that were successfully funded in the show notes that uh, I'll pass on to you guys after this. The process was a bit of a shit show as a delegate. It was very difficult to go through the 105 proposals. There's plenty of things wrong with it. But Brick, I'd love to get your take on like what do you, what do you think about the uh, the whole the whole process? Main takeaway was that it's still kind of hard to, or I guess it's been talked about a lot, but DAOs still seem super inefficient, and it seems that there hasn't been yet a solution that like solves for all the problems and. I feel that one of the main like catalysts for the messiness of DAOs, uh, if you can use that word, is that there's just like too many people who are trying to uh, participate in the whole process. And yeah, I thought about this a lot after the whole like steep proposal process. And I feel that like one um, mechanism or implementation I would like to see more of is that you like kind of elect a board of delegates if you will who make most of the decisions for the DAO um, and the DAO can like propose stuff to them and then yeah they make the decisions and if the DAO disagrees they can vote against those decisions and if somebody on the board misbehaves they can also be like thrown out and replaced which I feel that that would be kind of like taking the best parts that we've learned from TradFi or corporate finance and then um, putting some more transparency in that process and also like making sure that everybody who votes is super knowledgeable, but then, yeah, if they misbehave, they can also be punished. But I don't know if that's like, that's probably easier said than done. So would be interesting to hear in your takes or if you disagree. Yeah, I have two, two takeaways from kind of what you just said, which is one, I think the biggest issue DAOs face today is that there aren't enough professional operators in DAOs. It's, you know, mostly people who are big personalities on Twitter, um, you know, maybe an airdrop threader who helps a lot of people get, to get tokens, gets delegated a bunch of tokens or something like that. And while it's totally fine, maybe like more technical entities and entities who are who are, you know, really involved, like maybe, I don't know, smart contract auditors or things of that nature would be the best delegates or uh, you know, there's plenty of examples, these professional operators who would be really good. So it's like, how do you incentivize them to get involved and, and how do you get people to delegate that group or those entities, your tokens? Uh, and then the second thing is like, why do DAOs exist in the first place, right? To some extent, for not all DAOs, like I think Arbitrum is an example of a DAO that is needed. It controls like pretty much everything in, involved in the protocol. Like there is a security council, but overall the DAO has a ton of power. But other DAOs like, you know, Blur, Uniswap, like, these are DAOs that don't really that don't really do much. At the end of the day, they probably exist as a form of regulatory arbitrage, so that uh, the token is maybe not considered a security under the Howey test, depending on you know I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about there, but I think that that's probably a big portion of uh, why DAOs exist. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Yeah, no, I mean those are all those are all good points, I think, and it's like 
there's a couple DAOs that like have really gone the service provider route, if you will. Like Aave is the first one that comes to mind. Aave and Compound are like the first ones to really use Gauntlet at scale, if if I'm thinking correctly here. And you know, they have like this huge problem of asset listing risk management is like a very specialized task that requires some pretty in-depth knowledge of not only the protocol but risk as a whole. And that's like something that's just not fit for token holders in my opinion and so it they're like they kind of see that as well like all right we're going to use a service provider to make recommendations to the token holders so at least they're like making informed decisions and in the ave v3 build there's like these things called guardians that have even like further controls you can like elect a multi-sig to make uh certain decisions that are like you can do things within a banded range basically so you don't have like full permissions over what can and can't be done but like all right we'll give you the ability to you know change the parameters from x to z or something of this nature and like they're kind of like moving away from like the everything needs to be a token decision a token holder decision and like in a lot of ways i think that makes a lot of sense like Again, if there needs to be a quick parameter change, that shouldn't be a seven-day vote for everyone to participate in. Like that, that should just be the risk advisor's decision. Um, and then when you like really start playing that out, Brick, to your point, that kind of does start looking like this board of directors thing, where you have somebody who's overseeing like a risk head, who you know maybe they appoint a couple people to own a certain groups of assets, and then the DAO has like full veto control. And, uh, you know, we just had an interview with Sam Kazimian and that will actually be coming out on Thursday. So the day after this episode airs and they uh, we talked a little bit mostly about their their new updates. One thing that did come up was the Frax Gov module, which is kind of very similar to what we just described. And instead of giving like an elected group of people, it's just the core team, because today, if you know anything about Frax, like multi-sigs have full control over the protocol. Uh, and that is something they know and something they're trying to build towards to remove. And this is what the module does. So basically, TLDR is the core team can do anything. And then there's like a two-day time delay where the token holders can veto. And so this kind of gives the core team the ability to continue operating the protocol with a slight delay, uh, but kind of takes the the, rugging, the rugginess, if you will, uh, out of it, right? So if they were going to say, hey, we're going to completely drain the, the protocol, token holders can vote against that. And prevent that from happening and so they're kind of exploring their own route of like where is this line between giving professional operators core team members service providers whatever you want to call them giving that group of you know uh, professional entity control to operate the protocol but still keeping it in this like permissionless decentralized manner it's like a very hard line to find and we're going to need rapid experimentation to figure that out so Kudos to the Frax team for doing what they're doing. Uh, Ave again has really pushed forward the service provider route. Like I want to see even more and more of this. MakerDAO is going like sub DAOs. The Cosmos Hub has talked about sub DAOs in their own regard. Like there's a lot of new things happening. Yeah, I agree with that. We definitely need like a lot more experimentation on the governance layer. I feel like we're like barely in the first inning right now. It's almost like pregame warmups, but. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of just the current state of DAO government. Were there uh, were there any big like misses on like protocols that you'd expect to get funded that weren't like I know Lido was like very close on the edge. I don't actually know where that one ended up. I saw Curve did not get funded, um, but curious if there's any more. I know Gains Network didn't, and I found that a bit shocking actually. I mean, I know they're Polygon native, and they migrated, you know, just maybe like eight months ago, nine months ago at the beginning of the year. I think it was January. Um, so they didn't get funded, but the ask was quite a lot. It was like seven million, and I know they tried to ratify the amount down to four and a half million. But by that point, like the proposal had already been submitted, so 
like they were like, okay, we'll just get the seven million, then we'll return two and a half million after the three months or whatever, and like to the Dow. So like that is just like kind of janky. Um, but and then at the same time, like I think you had Mux Protocol get funded, so they are a you know perps aggregator, and a lot of the volume actually goes through gains. So some people were probably thinking, well, if Mux got it, then gains will see increased volume. So that's like kind of quasi allocating to gains. So. I don't know. That one was like a, a pretty tough one. I, I'm personally a fan of Games Network, so I'm a little bit biased. I would have liked to have seen that one pass, but you know, it's just tough for these delegates. You've only got so many votes. There's only so much arb to go around. It's like you, you can't really please everyone. Yeah, I think with Gaines, it was just that the request was too high. At seven million, they were the second highest request after GMX, and I think a lot of delegates just looked at that as a bit excessive for like a Polygon native perps platform. You know, if you give GMX and Gaines and Mux those those three allocations alone would be, you know, somewhere in the range of, it'd be 25 million ARB. That's half the allocation to three perps protocols. It's like, it just, it's just hard at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that ecosystem goodwill that I was talking about that GMX has means that they probably were pretty much guaranteed to get funded no matter what. They might've been like the fourth or f- fifth highest supported protocol or the application. Um, Lido was one of the most interesting ones. Lido had a heck of a lot of votes. Like overall, I think it had one of the highest voter tur- turnouts but it was super close in yes and no votes with a ton of abstains as well. Um, the way we, the way I, the way I think the way the Blockworks research looked at Lido was that it was a great proposal, but the problem was that Lido hadn't done so much in the Arbitrum ecosystem yet, as well as giving Lido a leg up in the kind of uh, LSD LSD market share of Arbitrum was maybe a bad look versus kind of funding more of a of a holistic like a holistic proposal that would get more LSDs in general onboarded. So something that allowed Frax and Lido and Rocket Pool and maybe even other LSDs to come on and kind of create this whole vibrant ecosystem of LSDs on Arbitrum that doesn't exist today. Outside of that, I think that a lot of people were probably disappointed that Ramsey's didn't get funded. That was like some $10 million market cap coin that forexed or something like that before, before the, uh, before the steps went up. Uh, Wormhole and Stargate did not get funded, which is an interesting one. And finally, uh, Curve, like you said, and Arrakis both did not get funded as well, as which I think were a little bit surprising to some people. I really do think delegates kind of just chose the protocols that helped onboard the most users to Arbitrum thus far and had quality proposals. But I think that the first point there is really what uh, what delegates probably hammered down on, it seems to me. I'm actually shocked that neither of the bridges got uh, got any allies. Do you know why that is or how far off they were? Sorry, I actually misspoke. Stargate did get funded and it was just Wormhole that did not get funded. Um, yeah. Not sure why that, you know, from my point of view, I actually really liked Wormhole's proposal. I don't exactly know what the what the take was there. Keeping in mind, sometimes some of it has to do with like uh, even just the reputability among delegates. Like maybe Stargate has a good relationship with some of the bigger delegates or something like that. We chose to vote for Wormhole and against Stargate. But yeah, hard hard to know exactly. Now I know I'm just throwing like random names of the 105 at you. <laughs> so curious if you know if uh, Synapse got in, in got the allocation that they asked for just because they're kind of in that bridge category as well. Synapse was very close, but did not get funded. Um, yeah, they were, they were very close. We were not able to vote for them just because we decided that we were only going to support 50 million Arbon proposals total. But overall, like, you know, Synapse is a great protocol that probably has onboarded a lot of users into Arbitrum before. Uh, if I remember correctly, from my point of view, their proposal 
incent more more so was beneficial to LPs on Synapse than it was kind of to the Arbitrum ecosystem. Um, in that you know it didn't really incentivize a lot of sticky liquidity to come into to to bridge into Arbitrum, but rather just to to provide liquidity to the Synapse protocol for for bridging into Arbitrum. Yeah, I thought the the wormhole one was pretty cool for doing achieving kind of exactly what you just described, where they're like trying to bring USDC through wormhole into Arbitrum, and then we're going to basically incentivize that the USDC stays on Arbitrum. I thought, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, native USDC too, because you've got the USDC dot E, and then you've got you know native USDC. It's just kind of a bitch of a UX and. Like really nothing that got passed really addressed that directly. I would have liked to have seen something around that. Maybe there's room for one of those bridges to actually submit a proposal outside of the actual STIP program that's a little bit more targeted and that draws a little bit more user mindshare or voter mindshare, I should say. Because I, I just think it was really, really difficult for all these delegates to go through all these proposals. And you know everyone's got friends' places, so everyone's asking you, and it just turns out to be a huge pain in the ass. So. Yeah, that'd actually be a cool one. It's something to incentivize swapping usdc e for native usdc and kind of trying to like deprecate the usdc e i think gauntlet's working on a like some mechanism designs to help with that process and make it make it a little bit easier ux uh, i think maybe they're working with the foundation or off-chain labs or maybe the dow i'm not sure exactly who but they are they're working on that yeah i actually had an observation on the uh the perp stuff it's kind of interesting that dydx you know v4 is really, really soon, um, assuming within the next week or two, I would guess from what people are saying. But um, the fact that they want to do $20 million of incentives, roughly like 10 million tokens. And then at the same time, Arbitrum just gave out roughly the same dollar value to perps, you know, platforms in, in its ecosystem. It'll be kind of funny to watch uh, who kind of wins that battle right there. You got to think that probably it's the same 100 users washing on every single one. But I don't know. I'd like to try and be a little more optimistic. Yeah, why don't you kick us off with a little hot hot seat cool throne? All right, yeah, I actually have like small cap LST uh, protocols in the cool throne. Could have put Lido in the hot seat. Either one worked. We just kind of try and get two hot seats and two cool thrones. So that's how the that's how the math checked out. But basically, Lido uh, voted the DAO voted to sunset ST Soul because the um, I guess the the core contributors needed one and a half million to basically continue building that out and to allocate for incentives to actually stand a chance at competing, especially with everything going on in Solana with Gito Soul and the, the point system and margin fi and pretty much everyone who's on Solana is is farming those points. So I think the DAO is just like, you know what, we kind of lost that market. Let's just cut our losses. And I guess it's going to be like 100K to sunset the protocol over the next year. I think this this is really a big win for um, smaller LST providers in, in the Solana ecosystem. So like Marinade and, and Gito, but then also just bullish uh, momentum for Stride as an independent protocol with what we talked about in the governance updates. Uh, and honestly, Lido just really not being able to crack into other ecosystems. And then at the same time, you've got Diva trying to vampire attack Lido. If you guys haven't checked out that one, I'd look into that. And then you also have the, uh, you know, the Ethereum Foundation posting research on like, how it's pretty bad that Lido is getting up there in market share. So even in its own like market where it's from, it's it's still struggling uh, to to kind of keep a hold of the narrative. And then if you just look at the numbers now, you've got Lido at a one point four billion dollar market cap. They have like fourteen billion dollars of ETH staked at a four and a half percent yield. So that's like six hundred and thirty million or so a year. But ninety percent of that goes to the people who deposit. Five percent goes to the DAO. Uh, and then 5% goes to the node operators. So that's really only $30 million or so of, of revenue. Uh, and if you just kind of look at the 
the, the the multiples on that it doesn't look super attractive it's like at this rate you really are kind of near the upper bound in terms of what market share you can get of staked eth and then at the same time you just like need the eth price to go up to make your earnings go up it's like why wouldn't you just buy eth in my opinion but yeah i'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on this proposal and just as like a a psa if you have any st soul you'll have until february to uh uh, withdraw that deposit because that's when they're sunsetting the UI as well. I've got some thoughts on the valuation because I think there's still a lot of like value in having governance rights over the whole protocol. Like I could see why that could carry a premium. Like if you, let's say in four or five years, you want to propose something that's a bit controversial and you're a big holder, then I could see why the, like holding a lot of the governance token uh, would be valuable, even though it wouldn't like accrue real revenue in that way you do have this added layer of like yes you get cash flows but you also get control as well like that's kind of hard to price in but it'll be interesting to watch that play out and sam to your point about you know how this kind of impacts the the goals or the mission of lida like they do seem like super eth aligned now which is interesting because the alignment folks are coming after them uh and so maybe this is their response to that of like, hey, if you want us to be more aligned, like, you know, we'll start backing out of other ecosystems and things of that nature, which is kind of interesting because I think it was Monet Supply actually tweeted this. But when they announced that they're going to like unwind their uh, stake soul initiative, it's like, couldn't you have like tried to sell that off to another provider or something like that has value of all these stake tokens. And I don't know, just kind of giving it up and be like, yeah, we're going to unwind it like unstake and we're going to kind of forget it ever existed is kind of a weird business decision in my in my opinion there um and even if you didn't like the service provider you were using to kind of run that operation well why don't you vote to like boot them out and replace them with somebody else like there seemed like a lot of options here so that's why it kind of makes me think it's more of this like alignment thing so there's been a lot of talk about the uh lido moving into the cosmos and how it's going to affect strides business model and how it's going to you know, bring uh, you know, an, an, another version of staked assets across the Cosmos ecosystem. But now you got to wonder, like, is that still on the table? Is that still what they're trying to do? Or are they really just going to be like, hey, it makes enough sense for us to just worry about Ethereum because we have this, you know, such a large stake of the network. Like, let's go all in on that and kind of, again, bring this like counter thesis to the alignment crowd. Like maybe if we can appease them, they won't try to kill us. I just want to bring up another. So I totally agree with the take that like I'm now super way more bullish Gito and uh, and Stride than I was this morning. I actually went into my Cosmos Abyss Kepler wallet today to see if I had any funds that I could move into Stride. I did. Tried to buy some and then realized that uh, even like I think there's the two percent depth on there is like a thousand dollars, which is just absurd. So <laughs> you know I can I can like the protocol and be bullish, but still not be able to get exposure to the token, unfortunately. But you know, Gito Soul is another cool one to keep an eye on as well. I have the uh, I have the Strides Coin Gecko page pulled up already and it's like it's literally five thousand dollars. That's insane. Ridiculous. Um another cool thing the Lido governance proposal recently last week. So I, I just came out with a report on DVT and the DVT landscape and I uh, came across this brand new Lido proposal from about a week ago which is that they are the proposal states like that they're going to attempt if it passes to make a small module. So a small allocation of Lido of Lido staked ETH that will go to DVT solutions, SSV and OBOL. So, um, you know, does this really solve the problem of Lido having a huge market share and, you know, kind of having a significant control of the Ethereum ecosystem that actually does present some vulnerabilities to Ethereum, given that 33% is a important metric for, uh, you know, chain halts. 
But that said, you can split it across with OBOL and SSV. You can split that stake across way more than the 31 node operators that they have today. So it is better and a step in the right direction. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we see that pass. Yeah, I've been hearing all about DVT for like a year and a half. And and this is the first time I've actually seen a little bit more like action. Like it feels like it's actually starting to come to life. And it's been like in the works for so long. So super excited to see how that pans out. And I know, yeah, that report that you wrote, Matt, was really good. If you're a Blockworks sub, you should definitely check that out. But Brick, I did want to come back to your comment just real quick before we move on. Like, why do you think the governance rights would would demand a premium? Like, I just don't even see it. It's like like if you're just going to stay ETH aligned, stay in the ETH ecosystem, like you're still kind of capped at your market share potential. Like, yes, the market cap of ETH can grow as well as the total amount of ETH staked. But I don't really know if that demands a, a multi-billion dollar premium. The way I see it is that it's such an important protocol for the chain that like it should get a higher valuation for the governance rights, let's say, or let's compare it to some perps protocol like even if you would get a lot of uh, voting power on those protocols, your impact on like the whole ecosystem uh, won't be as high uh, at the end of the day. So I kind of want to put a premium on that. Well, let's play that out though. Okay. Because like ETH the token doesn't control the Ethereum network. It's strictly the nodes. And so if I have a bunch of LDO tokens and I can like push a governance proposal through Lido, like what, what? What am I even capable of doing? Would be what I would need to play out. I feel like, like, don't you just have control over like maybe, let's say the staking router is live and you could like maybe you can vote which like what percentage of stake is you run by like the professional operators versus maybe the DVT operators versus maybe some other piece that gets added onto the staking router. Like, what can, I don't like if I wanted to like push a you know a controversial EIP through the network like. Could I use my LDO tokens to kind of do that? Uh, well, the what, how would I put it? Like the constraint or the equation I'd use there is like, how much would I have to pay in LDO to, for example, capture a large market share by pushing out a proposal that says that, okay, all of the stake goes to a few of my own nodes. And by that way, start controlling the whole network um, against like trying to somehow maliciously attack the Ethereum chain itself. And then if you like put together those two constraints, I feel that it's cheaper to like start uh, acquiring Lido or that's why I feel that it should have kind of a governance premium. Cue the it's all social consensus conversation and just end it right there. No, I'm kidding. But um, like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept, right? Because no, controlling 51% of Ethereum validators does not mean that you get to decide what's the canonical Ethereum chain. At the end of the day, it's Ethereum token holder. It's a combination of like all the participants in the Ethereum ecosystem that decide that. But if there was like a controversial EIP or something like that, there is a significant power in controlling 33% of the Ethereum stake in order to have uh, sway over the clients in order to get them to implement what you want. I don't know what I can't think of a good example of what that might be, but there there is some value there. I don't know what the how to how to value it, but I don't know how to quantify it, but there definitely is some value there. All right, enough Lido. I'm honestly tired of hearing myself talk about it. So I'm gonna kick it over uh break. You got a hot seat or cool throw this week? A hot seat for this week. Um I've been seeing a lot of link marines on Twitter um getting super heated about people who are saying that like CCIP hasn't been that successful yet and it's still unclear whether um they're gonna become a market leader. Like 
yeah, I get that. CCIP has a lot of like super good partnerships and especially on the TradFi and like, I don't know, real world side. But um, at the end of this day, it's like not still clear, crystal clear that um, they're going to take over the whole market. And especially like, okay, I guess they're still in a kind of a testing phase, but uh, it's cool that they have like 80 plus um, on-chain partners, but it seems that at the moment, there's like no on-chain DGen demand for the like cross-chain protocol. Everybody just thinking about what's the cheapest way to do it and what's the um, like fastest way to transfer assets, for example, between chains. But yeah, I, I could totally see the long-term thesis as well. Or I'm not saying that it's not possible for it to happen, but I'm also saying that there's still a lot of risk. Um, in like the whole CCIP thesis of um, it taking over all cross-chain cross transactions and like getting all the RWA transactions coming from like legacy systems to uh, banks' private chains. Is that the core use of it though? Is like the RWA side because I mean, I, I honestly don't know that much about CCIP, but when I'm thinking about bridging, to be honest, I just kind of use whatever is the most convenient to me because I never really find that one bridge is like extremely cheaper than the other. Uh, Matt, you brought to my attention that like going L1 to L2, you should just use the native bridge, but going L2 to L1 is when you can get cost savings and time savings. Um, and it's like, okay, so, but still, like, even if it is like, you know, if I'm paying five bucks on bridge A and three bucks on bridge B. I'm just going to, I'm not going to like pick bridge A or B because of the price. I'm going to just pick which one I'm more comfortable using. Um, I don't know. I mean, Chainlink's whole thesis is that they're going to bring all institutions on chain, so to say. Um, and that's where the large like TAM uh, is located or like, yeah, it's nice if you can get individual investors uh, using your protocol as well by like, if all institutions adapt your like mechanism or your protocol, uh, your market is going to be so, so much, uh, so much larger than on the individual side. Um, and the largest selling point for them is like getting these uh, tokenized real world assets on chain and like, yeah, banks pushing them on their or through CCIP on chain. That gives me so many memories back to like the OG Ripple XRP, like all the banks are going to use Ripple to settle the, you know, fiat to fiat transactions cross bank. And I was like, that makes so much sense when I was a 16 year old kid. But like, yeah, we saw how that played out. And, uh, I, you know, maybe this hot take or a bit controversial, but I, I doubt we see banks do it like okay if you're if you want you know information passed from ethereum to your private blockchain like you're gonna do that yourself um probably vice versa too like why rely on chain link to do that maybe i'm just misunderstanding i haven't looked into ccip so much and then additionally like the whole real world assets narrative that's been gaining so much steam it's like i'll buy the narrative you know i think that it's something that's going to continue to gain steam i want to make some money on it but i don't buy it as like this huge fundamental value proposition for crypto at the end of the day things that are governed in the real world don't 
not that they don't belong on chain they do like i think that there is some value there is definitely value in having stable coins and having you know treasury yields on chain but at the same time it can't be our fundamental value proposition it can't be our zero to one moment because it's too easy for these entities that actually govern the assets for instance the u.s government as it comes to u.s dollars and stable coins or the bank itself who that's issuing a whoever's issuing a bond whatever the corporation issuing a bond or the regulatory bodies who are regulating said assets have too much ability to just control it and move it off of ethereum move it to their own private blockchain um you know at the end of the day what ethereum and other what what are what blockchains do is they remove trust assumptions they they minimize trust assumptions but they also do add some cost and add some complexity and friction and it's like taking these things that already exist in the real world and it work totally fine and adding cost and friction um i don't i don't know if i see it as a huge value proposition but i know that's definitely a hot take one comment real quick before we get super deep into the real world asset combo because i could just i could just tell brick's got something to say but um i did uh see sergey speak uh at a goldman sachs crypto goldman sachs crypto event last thursday and i never actually listened to him talk so that's kind of embarrassing just on point one but he was a really impressive guy super smart and i would have thought like a week ago before that if you would have told me, oh, yeah, CCIP is going to be linking all these banks, private chains together, I would have laughed you out the room, Brick. But I literally saw this guy like having handshakes with like every banker in the room and he got invited to this event and he was literally calling it the Internet of Contracts. And like people were talking about the fact that, oh, great, we finally tokenized a bond on this private blockchain, but there's no users, zero liquidity, there's zero use. Like it's just it's just there. So I think if Sergey is working with some of these banks and like they understand the problem, as I just saw that like, okay, we have this tokenized thing, but we don't know what the hell to do with it. And he's the guy who's talking with them. And that's the new chain link vision. I think that's like kind of bullish. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also feel that sometimes they kind of oversell the whole idea and then like, don't talk about the downsides or possible risks there. It's more like you see these Marines going in on Twitter and being like, okay, we already won. We have these partnerships with, let's say, SWIFT and like big Australian banks and whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just like in a test phase right now. And you could well have somebody else who comes in, let's say like to Matt's point, some government entity or um, somebody already like um, super in the uh, TradFi world and just like take over the market from there. So like, I do believe uh, I kind of believe in the vision and I think like Chainlink has a really good business development team and like a good marketing team and has been able to create super nice partnerships. But I'd still say that it's not like 100% there or it's not a done deal. Like I got to see some transactions on that chain before I believe it myself or on that on that bridging protocol. Those are fair points, Brick, for sure. But uh, but Matt, I'm definitely de ready to derail this conversation with you and uh, argue about the efficacy of real world assets as a whole. And I actually don't think we I don't think we disagree that much. So my like framework for all of this is you know, blockchains as a whole are creating this this new digital first economy. Um, and, you know, each each L1 is kind of its own little silo within this larger crypto economy. And within that, you have different sectors, right? Like gaming's becoming increasingly popular. NFTs are their own little bubble in there as well. Uh, we're seeing things like social apps kind of come online and with the rise of things like friend tech and post tech and what was Stars Arena for about an hour and a half. And there's obviously the other big bubble and that's DeFi. And within zooming into just DeFi within the broader crypto economy, 
we have this like very nascent, very small, but very powerful financialized microeconomy. And so what we're doing right now is like, you know, ETH has become this like money, internet native like money. And we've kind of created a financial market around that. And again, each L1 kind of has done this with its own base token. But we're still this super small economy that like doesn't have, we have like our own native yields and things like that with the ETH staking rate and, and things of this nature, but we are still this super small economy. And so when we import things like the, you know, the federal, uh, the like IORB rate that Frax is doing with SFRAX or uh, some of this treasury yield that SDI is doing quite similarly, similarly through MakerDAO, we're importing these like off chain yields on chain and like powering our, our little micro crypto economy with these very, very important rates. And that is very exciting to me. Like, I think that is a bit of a superpower because now when we're in these turndowns and things like us treasuries get much more exciting, you don't, you might not necessarily need to go off chain to access those yields. So like if we rewind to you know peak of 20, the 2021 bull run, when things started to go bad and they were like hiking, let's say we rewind to when the rate hike started. If you had like, you know, you were like doing some like levered ETH staking yield trade and you're like, I need to take this trade off and go kind of start allocating into some treasuries. To do that, you had to sell all your ETH, go to Coinbase or your service provider and basically turn it back into dollars and then buy treasuries. Now you can unwind that trade and then just buy SDI or buy SFRAX or buy one of these on-chain treasury uh, products that are coming online with things like Ondo Finance. Now you have the ability to stay within your our little micro economy and access these off-chain, more off-chain-esque yields. And it's a it's still a different a different risk risk profile, but within this this one little bubble, you can now do more. And to me, that's super exciting. And and like why I don't think we disagree with that is like a a I don't think you disagree with anything I just said, but b one of the things you mentioned was like that shouldn't be our zero to one. And I agree with that. Like. I want to see continued innovation on it within the DeFi space, but importing these yields is still super, super important to like supercharging growth. And like, that's why I'm still very, very excited about this. I think I agree with everything you said. Well, one thing that comes to mind is that I think I would rather own treasury bonds than own Ondo treasury bonds. I think that there are trust assumptions that probably aren't risk assumptions that probably aren't so realized in uh, I mean, <laughs> definitely. And I I love Frax. I'm a huge fan, but there's probably definitely some risk assumptions involved in owning, you know, SFRAX versus uh, versus the treasury bonds itself. And, you know, maybe it's going to take me five or seven days or something to to turn my ETH into dollars that I made or whatever into treasury bonds. But um, yeah, I think I'd just rather do that from a from a risk assumption perspective. I understand there's some value in, uh, you know, foreigners being able to access these assets that might be harder, that might have a a high barrier to entry for them today but at the same time i don't think that's again like a huge long-term value proposition rather just something that is uh kind of small and helpful but i agree with everything you said you know crypto uniswap is awesome Aave is awesome we have great products and we still exist in this little bit of a uh looking for a nicer way to say it than this DeFi circle jerk where it's all just like crypto tokens and uh, kind of clownery but uh, i can go ahead and give my uh my hot seat if it's if we're ready yeah, yeah, go far away. My hot seat today is going to be the Uniswap hook haters. So there's been this huge rhetoric on Twitter over the last week or so that Uniswap is now Uniswap V4 is going to be a KYC platform. Um, people are just like going off about how it's horrible. But I just want to mention that this is something that was nitpicked from a public. So basically, okay, Uniswap V4, you can do this thing called creating hooks. Hooks are basically customizable pools that uh, 
allow for more complex actions upon swaps. So you can do things like MEV rebates, where you return MEV that was extracted to uh, to you know to the traders. You can do things like add royalties back into NFT into NFTs. So like that's awesome, right? I think that's something that's super cool that people hadn't really realized could be enabled and a ton more things. But one thing also that you can enable with the hook is KYC compliance. So you could only allow traders who have fulfilled the KYC in order to trade in a pool, um, which is actually pretty cool because maybe there's going to be things like these Ondo finance tokens where they need to be able to do that in order to be listed on Uniswap or they won't be able to. I don't know. That's just one example. But at the same time, it's an optional thing that pool creators can implement that is in no way enshrined in the protocol. It was created by a community participant at a hackathon, not Uniswap Labs or anything like that. And it's just ridiculous to see this huge rhetoric that, you know, Uniswap V4 is going to be KYC compliant, blah, 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 like complete shenanigans and made up. Hooks are absolutely awesome. There's about 80 listed on this site, uniswaphooks.com. Um, some of them are ridiculously cool. And this has only been being worked on for two months, if that. So it'll be interesting to see as more come to market. A genuine question here. I, like, why do people give a shit if something's KYC? They had to KYC to get money into crypto at some point, right? And they have to KYC at some point to get money out of crypto at another point. So I just don't understand what the big deal is here. People uh, want permissionless. Disagree. Yeah, people want permissionless systems. That's That was like the first promise of DeFi. But sorry, Matt, I, I'll let you take it from here. No, you go ahead. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I mean... I agree with you guys. It's like, I, I get that that's what they want, but like, this is just one option. Like you don't have to use it if you don't want to, but it's nice to, to have people that can use it. If that's like a rule that you have to follow. Right. Right. I think that guy, that's what got blown out of proportion here was like, this is a hook in the arsenal of hooks. And like, you don't need to launch a pool that has this hook. Now it'll be interesting to see what the adoption rate of this hook is. Right. Like if, you know, 98% of all Uniswap V4 pools use this hook, then like, no, it's not enshrined in the protocol, but everybody's doing it anyways. That's kind of like saying, yeah, well, MevBoost isn't enshrined in the protocol, but 92% of blocks are made with MevBoost. Fully agreed. And the Chris Black comment, who's like leading this whole charge of Uniswap's going KYC compliant or whatever. Um, I think probably if like he was on this podcast, what he might say, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, what he, what, probably what he would say is that if you know, the, the majority of liquidity goes to these KYC compliant pools, which not only is feasible, but maybe in some people's heads is likely because you could have banks and in, industry participants who are otherwise, uh, you know, not able to put it, go into these pools because they might be facilitated in, in some world. They might have this risk where they would be regulated for facilitating, you know, uh, for doing for doing for if traders are doing illegal things like maybe they would get in trouble for, quote unquote, facilitating it by being the counterparty to those trades. So, you know, people like that might go put money into these pools if they have a higher TVL, if the ETH USDC pool that is KYC compliant has a far higher TVL than the non-KYC compliant one. Obviously, traders are going to want to route through there. So even if it's not enshrined, like, you know, but this is just a potential future. And at the end of the day, if that's what industry participants and the money wants, that's okay. As long as there's the option for, you know, non-KYC compliance and uh, the pool still exists, I think in my head, you know, where the money goes, cool. Like I'll support it, even though I don't support, you know, I want to see permissionless systems. Like uh, I also want to see crypto succeed. I mean, hold on, pulling out the tinfoil hat here. Uniswap V4 is like, is kind of adapts on the V3 model where it's like complex LPs will outperform just like you and me LPing into a pool. And so if you play that out these professional lps that use really high uh 
high complexity based systems to manage their positions. They uh, are likely large U.S.-based entities that do care about what these KYC rules have to say. And so, you know, what's the likelihood that those pools are the ones that do get the liquidity? And to me, it kind of seems quite high. I would be, I would not be shocked at, at, at all if, say, some ninety percent of the liquidity flows to KYC hook approved pools like that. That is not to me. That is very much a non-zero outcome. I agree with you, but I think that's in like four or five years. Like, I don't think any legitimate banking institution is anywhere close to making swaps on Uniswap, like in a live. Right, but who, but who are the who are the LPs today, and do those people care? Is the question, and I got a feeling the answer is yes. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. I mean, the same thing. This will be the conversation. It's not just about Uniswap, right? Like, we likely will have L2s that you need to KYC in order to bridge over to. We are going to see this 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 play out. Um, We're going to see validators who are only willing to propose blocks that are from censored, you know, censored relays, and and it's. At the end of the day, even though I have strong opinions about what I want, like it's where it's where the money goes, and like that is how it should be. So it's like this truly laissez-faire market, and that's crypto. I think that's a good spot to end it. Honestly, this has been a, a really fun conversation. Brick, appreciate you coming on for your debut. I'm sure uh, the audience will get more of you. Got any closing? <laughs> there we go. I love it, <laughs> Matt. Thanks too. Appreciate you guys taking an hour out of the day. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll do this again next week. 